fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i am your host brian r solomon and this is episode 72 and it's going to be a fascinating one because my guest is abraham josephine reisman the author of ringmaster vince mcmahon and the unmaking of america the brand new Vince McMahon biography that a lot of people have been talking about. But before we get to any of that, a few items that I wanted to make mention of this week. Of course, I must begin with the uh, mention of the passing of Hussein Khosro Vaziri, better known to fans as the Iron Sheik, one of the all-time great wrestling villains and certainly one of the main figures of the WWF's national expansion in the 1980s. He was the link between Bob Backlund and Hulk Hogan. He was instantly recognizable for for fans of the Hulkamania, early WrestleMania era of the WWF, as so many of us are and were, as where so many of our fandoms began. The Iron Sheik was a pivotal figure He appeared on all the licensed merchandise, cartoons, action figures, ice cream bars, you name it. And of course, in later years, he became something of a social media and Twitter celebrity. The Iron Sheik, one of the most unforgettable and iconic characters in wrestling history. For a lot of us, really, uh, the personification of pro wrestling comes in figures like the Iron Sheik. So we recognize his passing here. I did have the opportunity to briefly meet him in my time with WWE. At the time, he was very much consumed by the the murder, unfortunately, of his daughter. And uh, I hope in some way that he was able to get some closure by the fact that at least he outlived that man, because I can tell you that he told me directly that if he ever saw him on the street, that he would kill the guy. And I have no doubt that he was speaking the truth. Um, So a very fascinating figure in wrestling history, a beloved figure, and we make mention of him here on Shut Up and Wrestle. Our thoughts and prayers are with the friends and family of the great Iron Sheik. Also want to make mention of some book-related items. I will be having a book release party for my new book, Superheroes, The History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. The book is available now. It is not wrestling-related, so I hope you'll bear with me, but it is comic book and superhero-related. We are having the release party at the restaurant Luna Azora in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is where we also had the release party for the chic book, Blood and Fire. It's going to be on June 23rd from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's Friday, June 23rd from 5 to 8, and hopefully you can join me there. I would love to see you. 
Also want to mention some signings from some blood and fire book signings that I will be doing coming up in the month of July. On Saturday, July 1st, I will be at the Jewett City Carnival in Veterans Memorial Park in Jewett City, Connecticut. Uh, I will be appearing there uh, as part of the Northeast Wrestling Card. I hope to see you there. And I will also be at the New England Fan Fest Saturday, July 29th in Warwick, Rhode Island at the Crown Plaza Hotel from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. So now, without further ado, let's get to this conversation. Abraham Josephine Reisman has written a book that is fascinating, polarizing, and provides a never-before-seen look into the early years and the formative years especially of Vince McMahon. And I was proud to kind of be a part of the the research on this book, because as you'll hear in the conversation, Josie came to my home to kind of go over the conversations and interviews I had done in years gone by with Vince, which I've talked about at length here and elsewhere. And so I was really glad to be able to contribute to the historical record. So now when the book came out, it was a no-brainer for me to have the author on my show. And you're going to hear some really interesting stuff about, as I said, especially the formative years of Vince and his father and just everything that went into Vince as a person and maybe a little speculation on what makes him tick. So if that is a a topic of interest to you, please do keep on listening. And I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle today. I think this is, we'll talk about this, but this has got to be the first guest that I've ever had on who actually stayed over at my house once. That's got to be, that's definitely a first. So uh, she is the author of the brand new Vince McMahon biography, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. And I also have to say, before that, the author of True Believer, because we know there's a lot of comic book and wrestling crossover on this show. The author of True Believer, the biography of Stan Lee, which my kids had gotten for me from my birthday years before I ever got to know her. I'm talking about Abraham Josephine Reisman. Josie, thanks for being a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And you keep a nice home. To, to, to clarify for the listeners, <laughs> we were doing an interview and... Uh, the, the, the location, the secret location where your host dwells is somewhat remote and he was kind enough to let me shack up in the guest room so I could catch a morning train. It was, it was, uh, it was a nice time. Right. Because, um, I, I want to say off the bat for people that listen to this show, if you are the listener that loves when I talk about Vince McMahon, then this is definitely the show for you. If you hate all of my Vince McMahon stories, then you might want to skip this episode because this, <laughs> this one is tailor-made for talk about Vince McMahon. And so, of course, when Josie was working on the book, Ringmaster, she reached out to me and wanted to talk about my experiences working for Vince. And and I and as it turned out, I had tapes of interviews that I had done and of course, that lit up the light bulb. And I think before I even hung the phone up, you were here at the house. Right? Yeah, Pretty let much. me tell you, I am so grateful to you and to the technology of analog micro cassette and to the uh, what's it called? It was like ever present, I believe, was the name of the digitization company 
that I sent the tapes to to try to get them to clean them up because yeah, you'd done this series of interviews with Vince McMahon that had been published only in tiny excerpt, right? Like little bits of it had been used in the WWE magazine, but you'd done these very interesting and revealing interviews, and they were still on micro cassette. So we I got them digitized. We did the best we could or ever present did, but. You know, this is this is I, I read the Bible a lot and do a lot of research into biblical scholarship. And, you know, sometimes parts of a document just get lost and you have to make your peace with it. And there were like whole points in that interview where it was just like the tape was degraded. Maybe the cassette recorder wasn't as close as it could have been. No offense. And, you no, know, you're right. Just... You're right. I was I was inexperienced at the time. I mean, this is 20 years ago. I kept right. myself thinking like what I would have done better or different in terms of recording and preserving the interviews that I did. It's, no it's I, you know, this is the thing. These are the things you don't know, like early in your career. You don't know in any career. You don't know what stuff you're doing is going to be worth remembering or is going to be important later. So what but what you did have was unbelievable, you know, for for people who've read the book, um, that is the unpublished interview that I refer to a lot during the book, especially about his early life, Vince's early life, and especially, especially about his relationship with his biological father, Vincent James McMahon. The, those tapes shed valuable, invaluable. I know those are kind of synonyms, but let's pretend that the second one means something more. <laughs> uh, pieces of information for me to construct what I think was and is the most important relationship in Vince McMahon's life, which was his relationship with his late biological father. And those tapes really shed a lot of light. Well, thank you. And and I think about it now. And you, you mentioned the tape recorder and all that stuff. And I can tell you, I got this audience, which uh, that interview was for a, my first book, WWE Legends, and where I wanted to talk to him specifically about his dad and other people that, you know, he knew from when he was very young and i i took the tape recorder i was sitting in that famous office that he has he did not have the tyrannosaurus rex skull yet at the time but i had gotten this incredible audience thanks to his wonderful assistant at the time beth zaza and i'm sitting across the table from him and like a complete moron which i'd never do today i just took the little tape recorder and just put it right in the middle of the giant desk in between us, about equidistant, about two feet away from either one of us. And that's why it sounds like shit. So sorry about that. <laughs> nah, we all learned an important lesson and the stuff that was on there was gold. So thank you for I have to thank you because, I, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to come on here, even though it's a little unorthodox to appear on the podcast of somebody who you interviewed for the book, you know, you're not like a major character in the book, but. Right. I really admire your journalism and the amount of research you've done because not to shade anybody in particular, but there's a lot of really shoddy myth-making quote unquote journalism and history that happens in the wrestling ecosystem. And it was really refreshing to be able to go into like an archive where you had asked good questions <laughs> of the most important person in wrestling, you know, I mean, you know, you were within like like anybody with any interview. There were things that were off bounds, but like well, the amount that you got was tremendous. So I was working for him. So you can't ever forget that. Right. I mean, right, there's but, only but, so but far you could go. That's what I mean is like, well, I mean, so much of wrestling history, unfortunately, because 
it has not been covered by independent mainstream news sources or academic historians too seriously. So much of the history you have to decode from the official accounts, you know, because the official accounts are what dominate the narrative. There are very few serious wrestling journalists who actually like FOIA documents and go interview people from outside of wrestling who knew the wrestlers and don't necessarily, you know, buy into kayfabe, et cetera. You know, there are so few people who actually bother to do that. And what's really amazing is the people who are able to gar- like get real information from within the eco- kayfabe ecosystem. Cause like now you're out of it, you know, now you, right. you write independent work, but back then there was this set of strictures and you still managed to cont- bring stuff that contributes to the archive. Um, which is no easy task. I say as a journalist who has had jobs in the past where there have been, you know, not like, hey, you need to lie about this, but certain strictures about like, well, you probably shouldn't ask about this or you, you know, don't don't get too much into this. Unfortunately, that's just how journalism works. You got in the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody, you know, no matter who yeah. you're writing for. There's some kind of interest that's looking over your shoulder, unfortunately. I think what happens sometimes, because you're talking about sometimes, you know, how these urban myths and things get perpetuated. And look, there's always a temptation. I even have to fight it sometimes. When you love a topic, when you're really mm-hmm. interested in it, you fall in love with the legends and the stories. You fall in love with the romanticizing of it, and you almost are heartbroken when you have to yes when you have to hear what really happened yes Yes, that's what happens and and i could tell you i don't know if i told you this when when you were interviewing me but it's funny because i always knew i was working for him but there's a couple of funny things one was that when i did one of the interviews i did with him which was the one where i was in his limo with him and we talked i still can't believe that happened (laughs) I can't believe it happened either to this day. We talked for hours. And I think by the end of it, it was for the 10th anniversary of Monday Night Raw. And by the end of it, we wound up at the photo studio taking pictures together. I believe to this day that on that day, I don't think he was 100% aware that I was one of his employees. I think he thought that I was like a Sports Illustrated journalist or something like somebody from the outside like shane had made the introduction i don't know if he was fully listening but there's that and there's also there are those moments see because you didn't you you never got to interview him there's those moments where i'm I'm sure you would have loved to right i know that's one of my cherished goals but yeah go ahead but you sometimes do get the sense of am i going too far and uh, there's there was always under the surface the other Vince that, yeah. you know, you, you, that can come out. And there were two times where I sensed that I was low key pissing him off a little bit. One was when I insinuated, cause I had read this, I had gotten a whiff of this, that Vince's dad at some point when he was breaking in under his dad, that he might have been working concessions at the right. Joe Turner arena in Washington, DC. And I, when I brought it up, he absolutely bristled at the idea that his dad was selling popcorn and soda. Um, there was wow. that. <laughs> and the other thing was I pushed a little too hard when we were talking about the genesis of Monday Night Raw. 
And the company line was always, we were trying to get back to the more intimate audiences, you know, getting away from the giant crowds. We were going back to our roots when I think part of the reality was they couldn't draw those crowds anymore. Right, so right. I mean, sure. And I was pushing him. And part of it was naivete because I didn't realize that he was trying to get away from that. And I kept mm. going, yeah, but wasn't it also because... You uh, poor deluded fool trying <laughs> right. to ask a real but question of a major CEO. And he was getting annoyed. Like he kept pushing the company yeah. line of, of what we were trying to do. But you, I always had to be aware of that when I was talking to him, for sure. Well, the thing, I, you know, I just I feel like I should highlight for me the most. Well, there were two things in that tape that those tapes that really changed the course of the book. One was learning that Vince Sr., had uh, not gone down to North Carolina to meet Vince, but had rather, but rather that Juanita, Vince's, Vince Sr.'s second wife, had been the one who had sort of bullied Vince Sr. into meeting his biological children, who he'd abandoned. And the other thing, that, that just really changed the factual narrative sure. and put a lot of things into place that didn't make sense to me prior to that, based on what Vince had said elsewhere. But the other thing was that amazing story that, again, it's Vince telling it. It's a single source story. But the story about when he was having fights with his dad and then had this culminating row with his father. After, this is after Vince has taken over the company, but his father is still alive and still very influential in wrestling. And like, if he wanted to, could have resigned in disgust, and it probably would have really been a problem for Vince. Who knows if it would have like toppled everything, but it would have been a huge headache and it would have been a deep shame for Vince. So Vince is telling you about these these times where he would be fighting with his father who would be threatening to leave and cause a tantrum because Vince was like demolishing the territories and stealing everybody's talent or buying everybody's talent, I should say, et cetera. And in this culminating fight, which may or may not have been the conversation that they had uh, while debating with Hulk Hogan uh, about whether he was going to get the belt, um, he says to his dad, like, it's down to either the promoters or me. Like, either you're with your old colleagues from the National Wrestling Alliance, etc., or you're with your son. And again, this is just Vince telling the story, but the fact that he tells it is so interesting to me. His father apparently pauses and then says, you know what, Vinny, you're right. And can I can I swear on this podcast? I can't remember. Go, go for it, yeah. Okay, yeah, he says, you know what, Vinny, you're right. Fuck those guys. Which is just, an when you told yeah. me that, you'll remember, I fell out of my chair. You did. You I fell so, onto the floor. Yes, I fell onto did. the floor because it just, again, things started to click into place. I was like, oh, right. This world of promoters was a world of guys who completely could not ever unite to get rid of Vince McMahon. They all were willing to bite each other's backs. By the time they figured out they had to band together at all, it was almost too late. And when they tried to band together, it didn't work because none of these men were really, uh, they were, it was a den of, you know, there wasn't honor among thieves. Once the structure that had kept the National Wrestling Alliance in place started to decay and once ca ca cable television came around and then Vince came around, you find out that none of these guys are all that loyal to the system no. and they aren't loyal to each other. 
And Vince Sr. was no different. You know, one of the efforts that I wanted to make in this book was to not demonize Vince Sr., but more clearly look at the evidence of what we know about Vince Sr. Because Vince Sr., most of what we hear about him is in the realm of myth. And a lot of that myth gets told by Vince Jr., by Vince McMahon, who claims over and over that he loved his father, even though none of the stories about his father sound very pleasant. And, um, you know, I just, I think that that relationship, we, we underestimate it at our peril. And the more you can understand the ways in which Vince McMahon Sr. and Vince McMahon Jr., I'm using those euphemistically because they had different right. middle names, you know, um, the way they interacted, that's sort of the topic of the book in a lot of ways. Father and son relationships and the ways that Vince recapitulated those father-son relationship, the father-son relationship he had with his biological father then with his wrestlers. Anyway. No, I, I think that is the defining relationship of his life. And I, that's why I'm glad that that became such a major theme of your book, because it's something that I don't think. And again, this is from years of obsession and scrutiny and research and talking to people. Sure. It's something I don't think enough people realize. And another thing that I and I'm going to get very candid here and, Ooh. you know, whatever. I've burned so many bridges. But <laughs> have, having worked there and been around the McMahon family and, and been around working for Shane and, and been around Stephanie and Linda. I mean, I've been around them all. Um, there is a recurring pattern, which. Obviously, I was not around when Vince Sr. was there to see all this. But what I know, say, for example, of the relationship between Vince and Shane, I will say, is very much uh, there was a lot of contentiousness behind the scenes, a lot of friction, a lot of trying to prove myself to my dad. I'm, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground here, but there was right. a lot of that. And on the surface, though appearing to be you know my dad is my best friend like vince was shane's best man which i think is unusual but to have your dad as your best man right but so that's what what, what the reason i say that is it's not hard for me to imagine with the things that we know that there was something very similar going on between vince yeah. and his own dad on the surface my dad is my world. I love my dad. We're best friends. I'm right there by his yep. side. But underneath this kind of like, I hate this son of a bitch, and I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. That Almost that kind of a thing. Well, that was the thing. You know, when when the Endeavor sale happened a month ago or whatever, you know, it was right. You know, Vince was like selling my book for me because it was right after my book came out. And people kept asking me, like, what does Vince want? And I would always have to preface, like, look, a biographer can't actually be a mind reader. I'm not going to tell you I know exactly what's going on in Vincent Kennedy McMahon's head. But I would say that if I had to venture a guess, what motivates him is not so much wealth or power as ends of themselves. What he wants is to be the top dog in any room he enters. Like, I really think it's as visceral as... The, the wealth, the power, the success, all of that is means to when I walk in the room, everybody has to stand up and perk up and listen to everything I say because they know I'm number one. That's why I think the Endeavor sale is going to be, the Endeavor deal rather, is going to be a bumpy road if it clears because Ari Emanuel and Vince McMahon are both very alpha types who 
are in, you know unstoppable forces and immovable objects, whichever one you want to pick. But yeah, like I think I think Vince want wants to prove that he's the top dog, that he's worthy, as you say. And I think so much of that comes out of his relationship with Vincent James McMahon because his dad. Look, Vince didn't even watch wrestling as far as we know prior to meeting his dad. You don't have stories of Vince as a kid, like saying that, like, you know, watching Crockett family wrestling in North Carolina. It just, it wasn't, this wasn't his passion. And then he meets his father for the first time at age 12. And his father happens to be a wrestling promoter. It's like the old joke in comics about Batman, where it's like, well, what if an owl had flown through the window instead of a bat that night? What if like a, somebody had thrown a snake through the window, would you have become snake man? Like, I mean, is it just like, it sort of feels that way. And that like yeah. his father who, you know, mind you has been absent for these 12 years while he's getting, according to him and, Evidence seems to suggest that this is true. Getting abused by his stepfather and possibly sexually abused by his mother, he meets his father and basically just, if I had to venture a guess, kind of made a pact with himself, which was like, I'm going to be a part of that world and I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of being in that world. Because the other thing I found out was that Vince Sr. had this whole other family, which as far as I know, nobody knew about, or at least hadn't written about in any of the major sources. Like Vince Sr. had basically adopted this family that he was not blood related to, but was related to his second wife pretty soon after he had abandoned his own biological family. And I found his, you know, non-biological daughter who was, you know, Vince's non-biological cousin, who's almost exactly Vince's age. They're mm. separate by a few months. But basically, this woman lived the life that Vince Jr. did not get to lead, you know, because Vince Sr. did have a lot of money, you know, yeah. stepfather and mom did not. But Vince Sr. like has this nice house in Rehoboth Beach and, you know, a place in Atlantic City and everybody's walking around and saying how much they love each other all the time. And then Vince Jr. shows up. And according to the cousin, Carolyn, he really did not fit in. He just mm. shows up and no one knows what to make of this this child and the child doesn't know what to make of them. He's from another planet, practically, you know, he's from like rural North Carolina and rural and small town North Carolina. These are all Northeasterners from the D.C. area living in the big city and then living in their summer homes. And it's like a summer home. I don't think Vince could have ever imagined something like that prior to that. And I think that, and that class resentment, oh my God, that is such a huge powering factor for him, not just in his actions, but also in his creative actions. Because yes. when he talks about Mr. McMahon, he always says, Mr. McMahon was based on the people I knew growing up who were rich and would lord it over people. Now, again, educated guess, I've been down to the places where Vince was from. I've talked to the people who knew Vince when he was a child. As far as I can tell, the only people he regularly interacted with who were rich and maybe were lording it over him were his dad and his dad's other family. Like, that; those were the rich people he knew. He was not living in wealthy communities. And so what you really see in Mr. McMahon, I think, is a projection and extension of Vincent James McMahon. That's why it's Mr. McMahon. Vince McMahon was not even Mr. He was not even a McMahon growing up. He was a Lupton. That was his stepfather's name. Right. Yeah. And, and I think 
the inch and I've talked about this before, but like when you get to the attitude era and when he creates that character, I almost feel like um all the years before that, when he was doing family entertainment and this very clear cut good guys and bad guys, all the stuff that he would later kind of dump on as being passe or old fashioned. I feel like when you get into the attitude era, and of course, this is with the help of Vince Russo, you can't ever forget that sure. uh, letting it loose. I think it was like the the real Vince, like his real yeah. attitudes that he did not allow to seep into his product before mm -hmm. that because he didn't think customers would buy it. But this idea, this these very cynical ideas, like nice guys finish last, and and nobody wants to cheer for a really mm -hmm. good guy. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna hate him. They they want. Uh, a kind of you have to be anti-authority you have to be somebody that's going to kick your boss in the face and that like that that more kind of rough hewn anti-authority sometimes cynical attitude towards life was really there all along and the attitude era allowed him to express it to the public i think that's in many ways true i think what one of vince's killer apps which other people have subsequently figured out, and he wasn't exactly the first, but he was still a pioneer in terms of the cultural sea change, was you get ahead by injecting your worst impulses into your art and calling it yourself, mm -hmm. you know? Or maybe not even your worst impulses, maybe your best impulses, but you take yourself the raw material of your angst and you create um, something that is not even thinly veiled something that has your name on it i think of the comparison point i often make between vince mcmahon with vince mcmahon is if you want to do sort of a photo inverse in terms of the moral valence on some levels you could talk about taylor swift taylor swift is somebody who figured out that if you inject just enough of your like primal freudian uh issues into your work people will really gravitate towards that especially if you say oh hey everybody this is the real me or at right, least you imply right. it you, you you let them think they're getting a glimpse behind the curtain at the real you that is such a sexy tout whether you're vince mcmahon or you're taylor swift people want to get glimpses behind the scenes and that I think you're right. I think for a while, not his entire life, but for a while, Vince really did have that cynical view of things. And once he, I think what really allowed him to realize he could get it out there in the world was winning against the federal government in the steroid trial. Like when he fit finishing that, I think really gave him a huge boost of confidence uh, to be confrontational to his enemies. Because after that, you get him going after Phil Mushnick and then going after Ted Turner with the billionaire Ted sketches and everything. But I think the real turning point there was when he beats the entire federal government in a trial, which federal cases that go to trial do not usually result in not guilty verdicts. He, after that, I think you're right, realized like maybe people are ready for vince mcmahon more uncut i mean the day he gets that verdict he goes on television and says you may find that the hunters will become the hunted right right and it's like it's like this light switch flipping where as soon as he realizes or at least in his own mind that he's invincible he goes oh i don't have to worry about what other people think anymore cool 
here we go. This is the stuff that really powers me. But of course, it's always with uh, a hand in the world of like, well, this is just make believe, you know, I'm just yeah. making it all up. And and you never know where that begins and ends. And you can distance yourself when need be. Like you exactly. Could say, you well, always well, have the right though, no, because we were told repeatedly when we worked there. Um, when referring to the TV character, it is Mr. Mr. McMahon. McMahon. Do not refer to the TV character as Vince McMahon. That is not Vince McMahon. Like that was mm -hmm. made very clear to us at the time. Absolutely. And there's there's character reasons for that. But there's also just legal reasons for that. Because if you make that hard distinction, that is not really a distinction, then you can more easily get away with having the CEO of a company say horrific things on television. You can be like, oh, he's playing a character. Even if he's saying stuff that really comes from the heart, as long as you can distance yourself from it, then you don't have to worry about, um, you know, the potential consequences for the stock or something, you know? Right. And I think, you know, just to get back to the Vince senior thing too. Yeah. It's interesting to me because um, he's somebody that, and this is why I think sometimes it gets glossed over. When you talk about wrestling promoters, there's a lot of really crummy ones that there's oh, horrible yeah. stories Real about. Real losers. Just horrible. Like yeah, horrible people. But he usually is one of the ones that people have nice things to say about and warm memories about. And so sometimes it goes against that narrative. Like I just wrote, and I've done research on uh, the career of Bruno San Martino, but I wrote a piece yeah. because it, we just passed – the 60th anniversary of his winning the title for the first time. Oh, and, wow. God. Yeah. It's May 17th actually is when that anniversary was, but yeah. um, his relationship with Vince senior was very rocky. They did not like each other. I mean, and they, were I was about to say, yeah, you want to talk about somebody who didn't get along with Vince senior. That's right. that's exhibit a. And at the time he wouldn't really talk about it because they were making a lot of money together and they'd, yep. they'd, they'd agreed to work together. But in, but years later, very, I mean, I'm sure you, you saw the Donahue show. I mean, he'd be Absolutely. very quick to talk about this man's father blacklisted me, you know, and yep. all that kind of stuff. So with people like that, you get a glimpse sometimes that the, the Vincent James McMahon. No, and, and the thing was, you not, just I started yeah. taking those glimpses and you collect as many of them as you can. And once you start to connect the dots, it does not paint a pretty picture. I mean, the quote that I always come back to and God bless DVD commentaries. The DVD commentary for Beyond the Mat, Barry Blaustein's movie, featured an interview, exclusive interview, with um, Mick Foley and Jesse Ventura. And in that, Jesse Ventura gave me the quote of a lifetime to describe Vince Sr., which was, um, he, you would go in and ask him for more money and you'd walk out of the meeting. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but you'd walk out of the meeting and you'd feel great. And then you'd realize that you actually hadn't gotten any more money. Even when he was sticking to you, sticking it to you, he made you feel good while he was doing it. And I think that's the key is Vincent James McMahon was very good at making you feel nice. And that's the thing is both he and Vince are very good at pushing people's buttons. Mm. It's just that Vince Sr. wanted to push people's buttons to make them feel happy and nice and have a good time. And Vince did that for a while, but then after a while realized there was big money to be made in pushing buttons that made people feel 
really gross, uh, but they couldn't look away, you know? But the <laughs> point is, yeah, Vince Sr. would make you feel good and then still stick it to you. I mean, the, the story that David Bixenspan uncovered about the National Wrestling Alliance investigation from the federal government back in the um back in the 50s yeah. and you know this FBI document that Bixen Span uncovered where they put a wire in one of the rooms waiting rooms while Vince Sr was about to testify and he literally says like yeah basically I intimidated this witness and it was Dr Jerry Graham Vince's Vince's <laughs> Vince Jr's hero but he was like yeah I told him you know where your bread is buttered if you do this you're killing yourself talking about like testifying in a way that would have been disadvantageous right. for Vince and the NWA self preservation question mark fuck it and this memo my favorite part is the epilogue of that which was the memo was handed to J Edgar Hoover who apparently just didn't follow up on it, you know, <laughs> like nothing, nothing happened. You know, yeah, this witness tampering in this major case, like uh, I'm sure it got stuck in the inbox somewhere and nobody got around to it. There was that attitude back then that it's wrestling. Who cares? Exactly. You know? It's wrestling. Who cares? So it's like, I'm sure if he saw it, he was like, oh, what do I care? It's just a bunch of kids stuff, which is how so many crimes have been gotten away with because people Think that if the end product is silly, the process that led to its production must have been silly as well, and the people who made it must be silly. I run into this all the time in mainstream journalism about comics as well. Mm -hmm. Comics and wrestling, it's the same thing. You have mainstream people who no should know better and have the actual resources and platforms to expose the crimes that are happening and they just don't even bother looking for the crimes because they just think, ah, it's wrestling, it's comics, it's just silly. Who's gonna care? Or they think, or they think it's silly, and I just want to get a fun quote, you know, from this little laughing stock. And then that's how you get away with like that's how like you end up with you know dead girlfriends and overdoses and CTE and everything in between. Yeah, because it's a combination of the attitude of it's just wrestling, who cares, it's silly, and also, especially back then, the cynical notion that what is the political benefit of going after this? Right, like, exactly. Even, even no if constituency. it's wrong. Right. Even today, there's no constituency, really, for going after wrestling. Like, who's the one politician who bothered? Andrew Yang. And Andrew Yang went nowhere. You know, yeah. Andrew Yang was and did not even spend that much time on the platform of I'm going to regulate wrestling. But like, that's the point. The only person who was going to bring it up was this esoteric, you know, even when he was running for the Democratic Party, third party candidate, essentially. You know, you have to get some weirdo from outside the system who's even going to bother to say, hey, we should look into this wrestling thing because it looks like it's really bad. Other than that, it's what Meltzer told me, Dave Meltzer told me that I put in the book where it's like, you know, as he put it, the politicians don't want to be seen to be taking wrestling seriously. Right. I'll never forget. And I think it's on that Donahue show or maybe I think it's Donahue where they lay out all this stuff. That's going on in the business. That show covered it all. I mean, the ring. Oh, boy yeah. Stuff, it was like everything. some stuff in not as much detail as you'd like, but it really did hit the points. But then somebody in the audience says, God, isn't this all just right. fake? 
God bless this woman. I don't know what she's doing now. I know. But she stands isn't up this... after hearing all this and goes, yeah, but I, isn't wrestling fake? Like, like, how is that relevant to anything That's that has the come thing. before? But this was, I wanted to confront that head on in this book because that remains the, the number one stumbling block for getting a mainstream reader to read about wrestling is this question that is not actually the question they're asking, which is, is wrestling real? Well, you have to break down for them. Well, what do you mean by real? Mm -hmm. And the trouble is a lot of wrestling books and articles, I think, from people who actually are in, do understand it, don't explain it well enough because they themselves have often not interrogated hard enough what is real and what isn't in wrestling. Like, we all know wrestling is quote-unquote fake. Right. We're all smarks here. OK, we all know the wrestling's fake, but then we can't agree on what parts of it are fake. You know, sure, the end of the match is predetermined, but then you can spend the rest of your life like the Zapruder film analyzing some match and going, oh, he was really working stiff right there. He really wanted to hurt him or like or something more innocuous, like, oh, that was a tribute to this match from 1973. You know, whatever. You can come up with all of these theories about what's going on behind the scenes, and that's that's the magic. Like, that's how you get people to keep coming back. Yeah, one of the things that I tried to break down right out of the gate when I wrote uh, another book I did called Pro Wrestling FAQ, which was meant to be, like, just sort of like a everything you ever wanted to know kind of book. I break yeah. down... A very simple, what should be a simple idea, but a hundred years of, you know, kind of illusion and everything else is the simple statement, professional wrestling is not professional wrestling. That's the right. simplest it's not, way I, I know. put it. It's, that's the, you are, you're a genius. You're exact, That's the most succinct way to put it. Right. It's like Voltaire's line about the Holy Roman Empire, neither Holy Roman nor an empire. <laughs> professional wrestling is neither professional nor wrestling. You know, right. it's like, it's something else. It's like that's the, the the term is often what throws people right there. Right. Because it was always the dilemma. I mean, certainly isn't these days, but it was always the dilemma. For example, if you're an amateur wrestler, like if, if you're if you're an uh, if you're a college basketball player, you can go to the NBA. If, if you're, a, 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 you know, a college uh, football player, same thing. You go to the NFL. If, if you're an amateur boxer, you can easily transition and become a pro and make a lot of money. If you are an amateur wrestler, you have no – there was no way for you to, quote, unquote, go professional because there was no such thing. Because this industry right. that was pretending to be the professional version of wrestling – It crowded it out. Not, like, right. It was not doing, that. If you're doing – I I often talk about how – I was a big wrestling fan and then near the tail end or actually it was right in the middle of my wrestling fandom. I in gym class randomly got assigned into wrestling like Greco Roman or Olympic wrestling, quote unquote. And it was the best semester of my life. Athletically. I was in the best shape I ever was. And I loved doing it. And it has been a great frustration in my life that that kind of wrestling, there's no opportunities for it after you're done with school, unless you are an Olympian. Right. And even if you're an Olympian, after a while, all you can do is just train more people in school. Like there's no because pro wrestling crowded out the concept of wrestling as something that people watch on Moss outside of the Olympics, you know, and 
I'm not saying that's a tragedy that, you know, pro wrestling has to atone for, but it is interesting that like, it really did just prevent that kind of wrestling, the real wrestling quote unquote, from ever being able to gain a foothold as a spectator sport. Right. Because it's, you know, the product that labels itself professional wrestling is not actually the professional version of wrestling. It's like a completely different uh, thing. But uh, but again, that is like you said, it's that whole very complicated question. It's like, I don't know what the thinking is. It's like you're saying just be, you're saying that because this is choreographed or scripted, that these are not real people that are doing it. Right. Right. And I think that that's actually part of the McMahon plan, because <laughs> the McMahons were the ones who started in legal testimony and in legislative hearings in the mid 80s saying wrestling is fake you know in in so many words they would say it's like the harlem globetrotters or the circus that was their comparison their two comparison points and i think the thing is the mcmahons linda and vince have known and did know back then that if you can convince the public that this is fake then you can get away with even more than you get away with now because as soon as it's fake then it doesn't have to be regulated. And as soon as it doesn't have to be regulated, nobody's watching, you know? And I think it's still advantageous for them to have this kind of hybrid strategy of like making the people who are addicted to it think that real things are happening yes. while also telling the public, don't worry, this is all made up. So don't, don't get upset if you hear about a wrestler who dies young because- it's not wrestling's fault. Wrestling's fake. Clearly this person had a moral failing. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you can get away with once you've convinced the public, don't worry, it's fake. And I know, you know, I've addressed it before, but one thing, there's a narrative that they've created that really bothers me. And it's only been in the last 20, 25 years. It was not a part of the wrestling discussion when I was a young fan, let's say back in the 80s or early 90s, this was not the kind of thing that you heard. But this idea that that is constantly hammered home, and it sounds innocuous, that the wrestlers are putting their bodies on the line for your entertainment, they're sacrificing uh. to entertain you, the viewer. Now, that creates the scenario that anytime a wrestler tries to stand up for themselves or doesn't want to do certain things or They're just not making the sacrifice, right? They are not willing to sacrifice. They only care about themselves. That's what happened. For example, when stone cold, Steve Austin walked out of the company, when CM Punk walked out, anytime somebody, that was the narrative that Vince gave in the Brett screwed Brett interview. Yes, that too, that too. They create this expectation. These people are here to sacrifice themselves so that I could be entertained. You never heard that. No one was saying Kamala is here, is sacrificing yeah. his body for your yeah. entertainment. Uh, Tito Santana is sacrificing. That was not part of the dialogue no. about wrestling. No. That is a new phenomenon mm. that I feel is is to dif disenfranchise the talent. You are exactly right, my friend. That is exactly. And you do that in. I keep comparing it to comics just because that's the other industry that I have a, a reportorial intimate knowledge of. But like, it's the same thing there where you go, oh, this isn't about money. 
You know, this is about the love of this art form. But the trouble is the art form is also an industry and you can't make art if you're hungry, you know? And when you say they're sacrificing themselves for the art form, well, this is this is the equation that Vince gets away with. Vince made himself into the singular man of the business. And then you would get to co-opt the the eternal three-word edict of wrestling, which is protect the business. When you say you're sacrificing yourself for the business, what you're really saying is you're sacrificing yourself for your promoter. And what you're really saying is you're sacrificing yourself for Vince McMahon. Because, the you know, there are the people at AEW, but even everyone at AEW knows that they can't say too many bad things about Vince McMahon because Lord knows there may come a time when even Bruno Sarmatino bent the knee. For he Christ's did. sakes, he did. It's really one of the most insane. When you, act, I'm so glad that you're you're telling the story of Bruno because I didn't have space for it. I've even been dinged in a few reviews for not talking enough about Bruno. I wish I'd had more space. I had a very strict word count on this, and I had to make tough decisions. But once you know the story of Bruno and you see the ending of it when he actually decides to come and show up for the Hall of Fame then you get a sense of just how messed up this industry is. You know, the Bruno story is kind of an encapsulation of a lot. Yeah, because he was the one. He was the one person yeah. who w could not be touched or, or would not be swayed. And, you know, it was weird for me because I was a big admirer and I grew up, you know, he's a little before my time, but just from my family and friends, just knowing how important he was and what a big deal he was. And I, I admired that he stood up and it was very conflicted because on the one hand, it was very gratifying to see him get the recognition. And I felt like this feels good. This You can't have a WWE Hall of Fame without him in it. That's insane. Sure, that that's would like, be insane, yeah. That's like a baseball Hall of Fame and you left out Babe Ruth, you know. Right. And so, but then, of course, underneath it, when you stop and you think and you go, oh, man, they, they got him. They bought him. Yeah, like they, they bought him. They gave him a figure and he took it. That's how they get you is they, right. they own, the, much in the way that they own the history, they own the Hall of Fame. There are yeah. rival halls of fame, but nobody recognizes them in the way the WWE Hall of Fame does. This right. is, you know, my my spouse was the one who sort of articulated this idea for me that I had been spouting, and then I re-articulated re it in the text. But this was something we talked about all the time. Wrestling for 20 years, for 20 years, until until AEW gets introduced, wrestling is basically just this... It's like the the and you know the NBA if there was only one team, or all the teams were there was one team divided up into a bunch of teams, and there was only one coach and one owner and it was like the same guy, and it's like Hollywood if there was only one director who made only movies that usually starred himself or released about himself. It's it's crazy to think about, but that's what wrestling was from like 2001 to 2019. When you describe it that way, it it sounds so completely ridiculous. When it's you so think ridiculous, about it. but at the yeah. same time, he won. Like, yeah. what are you gonna do? There wasn't anybody to say you can't do this. You know, anyone who tried to stop him was steamrolled over. Yep. And it's not like the federal government's going to care too much about him buying WCW for a song in 2001, you know? And the weird thing though about it is the weird kind of contradiction is I, and I, I mean, I'm thinking probably would agree, but if he hadn't have done what he did, 
Mm-hmm. I think the wrestling business would have just died in the 80s. It, it probably would have become... Because I this is the question I grapple with. I don't know whether it would have been that the wrestling industry died or whether it would have died and then be re- been reborn as something different or possibly better. I, it's Maybe impossible been to reborn, know, but I'm, I'm eager to hear your theory. Because I think it was already kind of imploding, and, and I feel like it would have gone the way of like, you know, everybody talks about roller derby as the example. Like roller derby was this big thing, this popular thing. I don't think it ever was as popular, it was as, never pro as, popular wrestling, as wrestling, no. but now it's just a complete relic. And because I feel like you had cable TV, right? So you had mm-hmm. territorial boundaries were dissolving. You had the whole change in the media landscape, the media landscape, the way that uh, these the regional entertainment was going away. Si- uh, you know, regional television in general was going away yeah. with with infomercials taking the place of local programming. No, no, totally. I, I think like by, by the end, you know, because I mean, I lived through that going into the 90s, television and everything was changing so much and becoming much more monolithic. I think the only way that wrestling would have survived is it didn't have to be Vince, but if it it didn't even just have to be one company, but for people to go national and to become bigger, I think if Vince hadn't have done it, what might've happened was there might've been, I don't think there, there would have been one company. I think there might've been a few, like you might've had people without Vince in the picture, somebody like a Bill Watts or, or Jim Crockett or, um, uh, who was the other big one that was, or Vern even Ganya, like, even, yeah, Vern Gagne, they may have, or even Fritz von Erich with, von, you know, the yeah, world class, yeah. even if the, you know, they had their own issues outside of wrestling, but right. you may have had a handful of national or close to national wrestling companies, none of which were as big as the WWF became and all kind of providing alternatives to each other so there would have been like this condensation of you wouldn't have had 20 25 different regional companies you would have had a handful of lesser national groups yeah and i think you're right that the art form probably would have become more of a curiosity as opposed to the weird hip slightly ironic camp phenomenon that it became thanks to vince and mtv you know, you can't underestimate the importance of MTV in all of that. But I think you're right. There's a very good chance it could have. I don't think it ever would have gone extinct. I think it would have just underground. Become, I think it would have been underground. And I almost wonder if, and now of course, I'm speaking as a creative. So I always just think about like what would have made the best art. And maybe if it had stayed underground, it could have been something uh, slightly more beautiful. But then again, the old territory system was no picnic. I mean, people were really cruel and it was a very exploitative system. I think no matter what happened, you know, the thing that didn't happen was regulation, meaningful regulation and meaningful reporting. Those two things just didn't happen. Whatever happens in the alternate reality we're describing, mm-hmm. that kind of coverage and, and, um scolding just didn't happen in our in our universe the scolding was always just about this is trashy tv which is you know you have like these voices in the wilderness like irv muchnick who are saying hey fyi these people are dying and this is a there's no labor protections here um but nobody was listening you know the thing that they would complain about in the mid 80s was like look at all this trashy tv and, right. and what was really fascinating was not even the snobs, was the people who loved wrestling. This was something I really wanted to unearth in this book, 
was like, because Vince writes the history and owns the tape libraries, the history of wrestling for most people starts in 1984 or something. Yes. You know? Yes. And so they don't have any context to know that the wrestling of 1984 that Vince was producing was regarded not as like, oh, this is just golden age stuff. It was seen as a horrible disruption. Like, you know, I, I love the, um, you know, Gene Siskel when he was reviewing, uh, no, no, it wasn't Gene Siskel. It was the television critic whose name I'm blank on right now at, uh, the New York times wrote this, this scathing article about the WWF when it was getting big in the eighties and had this surprise ending where he was like, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but he's basically like wrestling has this wonderful shabby charm and it's going to go the way of the dodo. Like it's, we're not going to have that kind of unassuming regional, whatever magic that was there. It's going to go away. And it was a fascinating review because you expect this, this TV critic to be coming at it as a snob, but snobs actually, a lot of them loved wrestling. There's so much beautiful writing about pro wrestling from before the eighties. And a lot of that actually disappears once Vince starts making it more of a kind of ironic camp, um, MTV ified thing. Yeah. Because it becomes McDonald's, you know, it becomes, it becomes McDonald's. It's a blue chip. It's just as Richard Meltzer, no relation to Dave Meltzer, who was kind of my spiritual guide, despite the fact that I only spoke to him once, you know, his essay from 1985, the last wrestling piece, I think was one of the most, amazing pieces of prophecy and analysis that wrestling has ever received. And like, nobody talks about it. It was just this essay that kind of dropped into the bucket, but I happened to stumble on it and was like, this guy understood everything. And what he said was wrestling is going to go from something that's archetypally fake, archetypally fake for real, I think is what he said to something that is just standardly fake. Like everything is fake. Like a TV show, which is like what a TV, it is now. right? I mean, he's being yeah. poetic, but yeah, he's saying like like a TV show, like national elections, as he says in his list of other things that are <laughs> fake, conventionally fake. Wrestling used to be something that was kind of transcendentally fake. You know, it yes. was it was something that was fake, and you had a lot of writers who loved to wax poetic about it. And as as late as the seventies, with Andy Kaufman doing his run. You there's have some the, really there's the Roland Bart essay that everybody and Roland Bart in the fifties, the Barnums of Bounce in the thirties. Yes. Like you have these beautiful pieces of writing, sometimes completely overwritten, but that's just a sign of how inspired these writers were by the spectacle of pro wrestling before it kind of became this mainstream TV thing. Right, and and for people who listen to this show and the conversations that I've had here. They know, I mean, there was a charm to the regional kind of uh, low rent sometimes, but but just because it was, especially when you get past like the golden age of wrestling TV in the 50s, like the 50s. When, re- when wrestling goes sort of underground, late 50s into the 60s, 70s, early, early 80s, there's a certain subversive charm that people it attracted a certain type of fan that was into it because it was kind of counterculture and weird and quirky and and different and and because the mainstream uh, world was not paying attention to it it had a cool factor and that's but i want i want i want to make a quick thing there this is the 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 fascinating duality of wrestling 
it was something that everybody was familiar with despite it not being mainstream because right. every kid watched wrestling it was a kid's entertainment not it was just like comic books ent- like comic like books. comic books it was not just for kids Although comic books really were just for kids in their early days, but wrestling was not was always not just for kids, but it was an entertainment that was safe for kids and that kids would go to. And so like my father, who has no wrestling knowledge at all, when I told him I was doing this book, he was like, oh, I remember seeing Bruno San Martino at the garden when I was, you know, seven or something. And it's like. Yeah, everybody was familiar with these people, but at the same time, it wasn't. It wasn't mainstream. It wasn't the headline. It was something that was cool in counter. That's why Andy Kaufman going to wrestling was such an interesting move. It was punk you know? rock. You know? It was punk rock before punk rock. Yeah. And, you know, I that's I, I used you know what? I'm a huge R.E.M. fan. And I had listened to Man on the Moon, their song about Andy Kaufman, their first of two songs about Andy Kaufman, maybe a million times. I knew all the words back and forward. It was not until I was researching Memphis wrestling and researching Vince McMahon's heel debut there, you know, which is like many years after the death of Andy Kaufman. But you think about the contrast between the Vince McMahon approach to wrestling and the Andy Kaufman approach to wrestling. And we could spend a whole podcast just comparing and contrasting those two. Cause I think they had a lot of similar ideas, but there was something about Andy's countercultural nature that made it subversive when he was being antagonistic, as opposed to Vince, who was trying to become powerful with his antagonism. And I think that when I when I finally got that song, I listened to it and I just burst into tears mm-hmm. because it's a song about the end of a world. Like the death of Andy Kaufman is something I will never fully understand because I was not that generation. But I think for a certain subset of that generation, and not just that, I mean, anyone, a few generations who grew up watching him on television, watching Andy Coffin on television, and then watching him wrestle, he was, his death was the end of an era that Vince McMahon then, you know, picked up a new era afterward. Right. Like people have rightly said that in a weird way, he was, he was ahead of the curve. Like, he was. like, like the Andy Kaufman thing in Memphis was, not a hundred percent because we all know there's you know there's philosophical differences but yes there, but there was something not... about it that foretold what wrestling was about to become you yes, know it, yes but it was it was when he did it it was beautiful yes <laughs> you know that's the thing it was one of those things where like as soon as you start imitating that and mass producing it right it becomes it. disgusting and offensive but when he was doing it at this micro level where it was just this one famous person playing himself question mark saying terrible things that were really like libidinous button pushing things about women and gender roles and sex you know once and the and and jerry lawler who was a local hero you know once you start pushing those buttons you can make something really beautiful but if you're starting to push those buttons every single week as part of your machine product you can be very destructive. Yes. And, and actually, and that leads me to the one thing I wanted to bring up, which is very important to me. And I know I don't want to take up your whole day here. I feel like no, hit me. We're, what? we're running out of time, but this is so important to me because especially from someone that has also written 
books on the subject. And now that I've written a biography and I'm working on a new biography, my second biography, there's something, some of the response to your book I take issue with, and I want to get your opinion on this. And Uh oh, okay. If you want me to cut this part out, I will. No, no, no. I want to hear what you have to say. I may may give a no, I may give a no comment, but I want to hear what it is. No, that's fine because this is what, what bugs me and not with you, but with criticisms of it is that I'm of the opinion that, well, I'm trying to start this the right way. Some of some of what's been said or complaints about the book is that it has a very specific point of view or it's very slanted or it's very negative about Vince or it gets very political and it and it's not, quote unquote, objective. Right. I, what I want to say about that is this. I, uh, I having written books on specific people, you cannot, in my opinion, write a a history book or a biography without having an opinion on the subject you're writing about. If you are doing that, you are writing basically a textbook, like a textbook. And even a textbook has a point of view, you know, but yeah, you're right. Every piece of work that you do not only has to, but should reflect your opinion on what you're writing about. Otherwise, you know, it is just, first of all, it's not going to be a very good book. Mm-hmm. If it if it takes no view one way or the other, uh, I think it just becomes, like I said, it becomes very dry. It becomes just, just kind of a reference book, like an encyclopedia or something, which is fine. And I think that sometimes when people make these criticisms, like why did the author have to put their personal views into the writing – it's I like, don't know. What they, do you want? I don't yeah. know if they read a lot of books. I don't mean to be, be condescending, but no, I get. I it. don't know if they understand how books are written or how biographies are researched. Look, I, I wrote a book about the Sheik, who is a man who was one of the biggest drawing cards in wrestling history, one of the biggest stars. But he's also a man who completely self destructed and yep. alienated everybody who knew him. And I can't write that book and tell that man's story without commenting on that on that i know it's just it's not interesting you know beyond beyond the questions of like whether it's ethical to remain neutral when you're describing something that's pretty transparently upsetting um it's just not an interesting story if you're approaching it as the unfeeling neutral sybil you know who's just going like oh i see all (laughs) because that's that's not the point the point is to write about life as it is lived and try to bring out, you know, I think of a, a quote that one of my favorite authors, this this historical author of historical fiction who died many years ago named Leon Fuchtwanger. He said that his goal in historical fiction was when writing about the past to write about the fire and not the ashes. And that's what I think about when I write. When I'm trying to recreate the past, I want to recreate the fire and not just go, okay, well, here's the ashes that we have. You know, just uh, take a look at the ashes and uh, get back to me and uh, we'll have a we'll have a podcast about it. You know, you want to recreate the way things actually happened and what it was like to live as Vince McMahon and to live through Vince McMahon, you know, and you the point of view is not even my point of view so much as just once you start quoting people and saying what really happened, then. I don't know what to tell you. I I I gave the story. I let me put it this way. I have yet to see a single uh comment about 
factual errors from WWE or Vince. Nobody, they haven't contacted me at all. I've right. heard nothing. That's very me. telling when that happens. Total silence. Total silence. If there was something in there, I mean, I'm sure there are like little things where like maybe I included one person's story and there's another wrestler out there who tells a conflicting story. I'm sure there are cases of that. I tried my best. But yeah, if there was stuff that was deeply wrong that they could, you know, I'm not going to taunt anybody here. I'm not going to. It's just the point is it it is it has not been something that has led to a lot of factual complaints because I stuck to the facts as best as I could. That was the thing. It was not me writing an opinion piece. It's just that I think you do have a point of view. And my point of view was not about the moral binary of is Vince good or is Vince bad? My point of view was about what drives Vince and how, and what was the impact that Vince had on his world. And I think the things that drive Vince and the impact that he's had are both very complicated factors that have a lot of unsavory qualities. And I'm sorry if people don't want to hear the unsavory stuff, but this is what I thought was the most interesting story. I was not, this isn't a hit job. I don't have anything. It's not like I'm, you know, I've been sent by, you know, Ted Turner to take down Vince McMahon. I don't have an agenda like that. I just told the story that was most truthful and interesting to me. And I hope people continue to enjoy it. And the people who don't, I, I'm, I'm sorry it was not for you. Well, I think, you know, it speaks to sometimes there's this fanaticism over exactly what it means to be unbiased or impartial where people, I, I don't know if it's just a, a media literacy issue or what it is, but, you know, for example, not not everything needs to read like it's an article from the Associated Press. You know, yes. when an author is writing something, part of what you're looking for when you buy the book is the author's perspective on the subject. And you know what? If if you don't like, uh, and, and again, this is Vince McMahon, you know, there hasn't been a million books written about him, but for any historical topic or a person, if you don't like this point of view, like I remember there was a Sinatra biography that came out when I was a kid and it was it really, it was a, it was not a flattering portrayal. Sure. Well, okay. You're a fan of Sinatra. You don't like that book. Buy it. There's a there's other Sinatra books that that's people the thing wrote is like there's that have those of authors' point of views in them. You know what I mean? Every every book is going to have a, a a point of view, and it's like being unbiased. Like I'm trying to think of an example that's not too extreme. If you're reporting on corruption in an industry or in a person's right. life, or on a death on a it, on a death right. that may have been a murder, it's not biased to be calling out the corruption that happened. Right. That is not a bias. And I think that's sometimes where the the issues come up with people uh, misconstruing things or whatever. You gotta just keep on trucking, brother. That's what, the, I, I can't let that get me down. Like the only way I can keep going as a journalist is to just say, I'm telling the truth as best as I can without uh, an agenda other than telling an interesting story. And I pick topics that I can be emotionally free on like that. You know, my, my new book is my most risky one because it's about uh, the musician Beck, who when I was a child, I idolized. But emphasis on when I was a child, I'm an adult now. And I, I you know, it's going to be a truthful biography as best as I can do it. It's a risk, but like these first two, I, I'm not, I'm not, come, people say I'm biased. Biased with what? 
Like with what? Who? What's the special agenda that I'm bringing to these books? Like I'm not I'm not working for somebody other than my publisher and my own sense of integrity and what I think is an interesting story. And also, you there's know? nothing wrong with having a thesis to what you're right. you're doing. It's the difference between that and writing a, a book report and you know and writing a term paper. Right. It's like right. you have a thesis with your book that you know part of what your book does is try it, it's trying to make the connection between wrestling and WWE and the rise of Vince McMahon and what we see in the modern day political sphere with people like yeah. Trump and things like that and the parallels and the relationships that is part and parcel of what you're trying to do Absolutely. with the book so either you want to read a book like that or you or don't or you don't and I hope people do read a book like that. You can find it at ringmasterthebook.com. <laughs> there you go. And get the True Believer book too, because I I, I really enjoyed that book Thank so much. Thank you so much. I, I, I had a ball writing that one too. It was, it was I mean, I, I say that with the sociopathy of a journalist. It was also <laughs> an upsetting story, but it was a very, um, I think the book came out well. So I, I, I appreciate you, you promoting that. Yeah, people can go to abrahamreisman.com. It's R-I-E-S-M-A-N, or you can go to ringmasterthebook.com. Either of those places will eventually get you to whatever you're looking for with me. Great, and and I, I encourage people to do that, and and I thank you so much for coming on to talk about the book and talk about Vince and, and his dad. Hey, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a podcast listener. You'd never know that from the sheer number of podcasts that you can hear me on now. But I, I'm a big fan of yours, and I, I hope people uh, enjoyed our conversation. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Abraham Josephine Reisman. And thanks to Josie for coming on the podcast to talk about this new, controversial, and fascinating book on really the most significant person in the history of the business. So I hope that you will check the book out. Of course, in addition to the usual places, you can get it at ringmasterthebook.com. And at that site, you'll also find information about the illustrated zine companion to the book. So check that out. And please continue to check out Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come next week. For episode 73, my guest, I've been talking about him for a while here, is going to be the writer and historian Tim Keenan, who recently took me on a tour of some of the wrestling locations of Detroit. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to have Tim next week. Other guests on the way include Irish Davey O'Hannon, and I'm also proud to announce I will be having Megan Baker Kelly who you may not know, but she is the daughter of Ox Baker, and she will be on the podcast in the weeks to come. So keep listening. And where can you find our show? Of course, there's our website, suawpod.com, which is the only place where you can find every single past episode of the show. Of course, you can also go to all the usual places, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, go check it out, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And while you're doing that, make sure to join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. You know, all those book signings and appearances and things that I've been mentioning, I will be reinforcing there in the group. So come and join the club. 
As for all the other projects that I work on, there is, of course, the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard. Find it at thewrestlingnews.com. Subscribe to it. It's also available in video form on YouTube, on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. My previously mentioned book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, can be purchased on Amazon.com at Barnes & Noble and other fine outlets in print, digital, and even, yes, audio form. So check it out. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you may have heard of it. It is available at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes Magazine, available where else but at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. I'm also a part of the PWI podcast, which you can hear regularly. It's available also wherever you get all your favorite podcasts. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My Facebook page, my author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my website, my author site on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you of the words of Gore Vidal, which may have very well been spoken by Vince McMahon when he said, it is not enough that I should succeed, others must fail. So long, wrestling fans. 